When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I am Sarah Jane Case, and this is Enneagram and Coffee. Hello, friends. Today I'm doing a special book reading episode to celebrate that my book is officially published today. Before we get in, I'm not going to be selling the book to you the entire episode. Like, this is going to be a really fun one. But I do have to shamelessly encourage you, if you haven't already, to go ahead and order your copy at TheEnneagramLetters.com. This week, especially today, along with pre-orders, will likely be a major deciding factor as to whether or not this book does well overall and if I get to write more books in the future. If you want to wait and order a signed copy, you can do that live on Instagram with me tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can do that as well. That might be really fun. Um, Again, that's live on Instagram tonight, October 18th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. All right, let's get into today's episode. But first, Rosebud and Thorn. My rose today is that I am currently in Bali, and you might hear some little bug sounds or roosters crowing in the background. That's just kind of part of it right now. Um, But in the morning when you wake up, the world smells like incense, like the whole town smells like incense and it is a smell that is so familiar to me because it's exactly how it smelled when I was in India. It's such a magical thing. I think it's like part of, you know, the Hindu religion, but it's absolutely just beautiful and magical and they put out all of these like beautiful um, ornate like flower or things with incense burning in them. It's just magical but when you open when like when I wake up in the morning I can already smell the incense and it's beautiful my thorn is that I am still getting used to being here (laughs) with the time zone and y'all I accidentally slept all afternoon and then fell asleep before even dinner so that's on jet lag and then (laughs) my bud is that I've decided to rent a motorbike and that should arrive here tomorrow so it's all very exciting stuff Okay, so for today's episode, in celebration of the book being alive, I wanted to read one of my favorite pieces to you from each chapter, and we're going to start with the introduction. All right, introduction to my new book. (laughs) Sorry, I yelled that. To my new book, The Enneagram Letters. As life moves forward, we collect titles like categorization lint rollers. Every choice we make adds another clarifier onto our personality, parent, child, spouse, student, employee, type A, type B, introvert, extrovert, what do you want to be when you grow up, what you do for a living, and so on. Grabbing them up unconsciously and consciously, adding to the way we see and express ourselves, adding to how others see and understand us. At times, this feels useful. We're giving a sense of understanding of not being alone. It provides a language for how we tell people who we are. Hi, I'm Sarah Jane, a stepmom, business owner, and extrovert who prefers to be alone and loves good coffee. This starts to take the place of getting to know one another and ourselves in intricate and complex ways. These categories so easily go from helpful to stifling in a matter of moments. 
no longer making us feel known and instead doing the opposite, telling us who we are even when we've moved beyond it or no longer experience ourselves that way. The magic of the Enneagram is not in finding ourselves in these numbers, but rather in recognizing that the things we thought we had to be were never ours to carry. There is a tremendous amount of relief available to us when we choose to allow ourselves the full range of the human experience, to operate from all nine types and all three centers. This compilation of poems and essays is here is what I hope to be a soothing balm to the part of you that feels pressured to be perfect, lovable, successful, significant, capable, supported, happy, strong, or easy to get along with, in order to have a place on earth where you belong. It's like the chrysalis and the butterfly assuming that there was never anything wrong with the caterpillar. When we live inside of the constraints of our Enneagram type, we are settling for a life in a cocoon, safe, purposeful, and limited. This book is a compilation of poems and essays written to the nine different pressures of the Enneagram, the things we think we have to be in life in order to be worthy of love, success, or safety. We explore the idea that we each in our own way, and to varying degrees, experience the gravity of these nine pressures of perfectionism, likability, success, significance, competence, support, happiness, strength, and easygoingness. Our Enneagram type is the gift we've given ourselves in an attempt to stay safe. It's a beautiful thing that has supported us thus far in life, but at some point, it's time to let it go in order to recognize that what has served us is no longer what we need. These poems and essays are my love letters, insights and experiences poured out in response to the suffering I've seen in individuals of different Enneagram types. At times, they're a direct call to action and at others, a meditative reflection on the type structure. My hope is that they serve as both a challenge and a healing balm in all of our journeys of being human. The Enneagram letters are my invitation into your expansion. So for chapter one, I wrote to type one or to the part of you that feels it must be perfect. And the piece I want to read to you today is breathe in. I love you. I have a practice I do when my shoulders grow tied up to my ears, when anger feels hot in my chest or embarrassment burns like lava in my cheeks. It came one night as I was trying to fall asleep and my mind was chasing the day that was to come like it could tackle the itinerary on its own. I simply breathed in and thought, I love you. Then breathed out and thought, it's okay that you're worried. And it felt so comforting, I tried it again. Breathing in, I love you, and out, tomorrow will be okay. It helped me so much in my process of falling asleep that I began to bring it into other parts of my day. Sitting on the front porch, worried about how well I will handle the things expected of me. Breathe in, I love you, and out. You are equipped to handle all that comes your way. Breathe in, I love you, and out. You are safe to feel the fullness of your fear. In line at the grocery store, frustrated by the lack of speed, and then ashamed for not honoring the difficulty of understaffed workplaces during this time. Breathe in, I love you, and out. You can feel empathy and discomfort at the same time. In a difficult conversation with my partner about a dinner I didn't feel up to, breathe in, I love you, and out, you are safe. Breathe in, I love you, and out, you love him. The end of a conversation when my eye, my ears are ringing with something I wish I'd left unsaid, breathe in, I love you, 
and out. No one else is thinking that much about it. Breathe in, I love you, and out. You asked really good questions. My breath is the carrier pigeon of loving words flowing in and out of my heart, breathing in love and bringing out comfort. It's so different than the voice I was trained to have in childhood. This voice, the voice of my breath, I imagine to be a comforting mother-like figure whose thumb gently grazes my forehead as I fall asleep, reminding me I am safe to feel and she would watch over me while I regained energy to do another day. The voice of my childhood was more like a stiffened schoolmarm, one who carried a ruler around to slap my wrist if she saw me slouch in my seat, a frigid witch of a woman who didn't think I was worthy of joy much at all. If she has to be miserable, then I should be miserable too. It wouldn't matter how hard I worked or how much I accomplished, my schoolmarm in her voice would notice the single missed punctuation in an otherwise perfect poem. My breath when she was in charge felt more like a holding. Anger and irritation writhed in my chest while I tried to keep it all together for everything that needed to be done. For her, I was never enough, and she wouldn't let a moment pass without reminding me of that. I talk of her like she is a thing of the past, like her influence no longer phases me, but the truth is, the soothing voice of my inner mother is just a bit louder right now. The marm is still writhing in the corner, wanting her words to take hold out of fear and that I will falter or I will fail. After all, we all three have the same goal. We seek happiness and peace and a sense that all is well with the world. We just choose different paths to get there. The marm, just like the mother, seeks nothing but good for me. And that's what made her so easy to believe. She must be right that I am not good enough because she has my best interest at heart. Now, though, I've learned to see her fear for what it really is. Disbelief that we can be broken, yet still worthy of good things. Or even that we were never truly broken at all. That ridges and cracks and mispunctuation are just part of being whole. That's the wisdom that the mother holds, the truth that we are worthy, that our fullness isn't to be feared, and that the only way to do anything great is to make a lot of mistakes. So when the school marm screams my misgivings in my ear, breathe in, I love you, and out, have no fear. All right, chapter two is written to the part of you that fears being unlovable. And for this one, I'm gonna read aggressively helpful. There's this coffee shop across the street from my office that has become my chosen place for self-care. It's beautiful, has great coffee, and they have the prettiest glassware. So when the earth feels like it's moving beneath my feet or my responsibilities have me in a chokehold, I will take a good book to the cafe, grab an espresso and a fancy glass, and just give myself a moment to breathe. One afternoon a few weeks ago, I walked in and there were several tables with dishes that customers hadn't put away. Before I even realized what I was doing, I'd already bust two tables for them. On my way to the third, I realized I was doing it again, that thing where I play the savior. I see a need, and I take it upon myself to be the solution, whether anyone asked for it or not. The problem is that needs are everywhere you look, and sometimes it's just not your place to fix them. In this particular circumstance, I was thrashing and drowning in my own turbulent waters, trying to do someone else's job for them. Other times, I take on people's problems as if they're my own, stepping in to try to save the day, bulldozing over their boundaries and feeling frustrated when they don't take my completely unsolicited advice. This tendency bleeds into my friendships, and I've surrounded myself with other folks seeking to be of service. In fact, I have a good friend who refers to himself as aggressively helpful. 
being friends with him is amazing because he is such a great support and one of the, my biggest cheerleaders. But it took me years to realize that unless I was just as aggressively helpful with him, we'd be in a very uneven dynamic. So I became aggressively helpful in response, or at least aggressively questioning of him every time he offers to help. Do you really want to give me an espresso machine or do you need to ask me to pay for it? I'm sure there are times where things are uneven, but I am aggressively skeptical of his giving so he knows he can take it back whenever he needs. Between the two of us, we've worked hard to find a healthy balance between offering support and over-sacrificing. And I think this only works because we're both terrified of taking too much. Our particular neuroses are beautifully aligned. But what happens when we point this loving energy in the direction of people without our particular set of quirks? I think the term aggressive is very appropriate here because that's the difference between being supportive and thinking that we're saving people. It's not our place to aggressively look for opportunities to be the solution to other people's problems. However, we can be lovingly supportive and available when we are asked. I learned this lesson at an Enterprise Rent-A-Car at LAX. I'd been traveling for 12 hours already and was feeling sleepy and disoriented. The woman who showed me to my car was very concerned that I wouldn't have enough room in the trunk for my luggage and was taking it upon herself to put it in the car for me. The trouble is that I had things I needed to get out of my suitcase and a preference as to how I would organize my car. So in a way, her attempts to help were actually causing me more stress. That's the tricky thing with being aggressively helpful. It's guessing at what you think someone else may need instead of waiting for them to tell you if they need anything at all. It relies on you doing what you would want in that situation and not taking the individual in front of you into account. It's like when my kid wants a cookie. He always asks for one by saying, hey, Sarah Jane, do you want a cookie? Not, can I have a cookie? Not just walking into the kitchen and grabbing one, consequences be damned. It's, Sarah Jane, do you want a cookie? I used to think, do I look like I want a cookie or something? Like, what's going on? Until one afternoon, I realized that he wanted a cookie. It's just easier for him to not feel rejected if he asks me if I would like one instead. It's easier to swallow than the outright no he's afraid of receiving by asking if he can have one. I think that's a good thing to remember. When we find ourselves wanting to play God, to take on the role of fixer, in reality, this is just information about what we want or would want in the same situation. It's all a projection of our own desires. We want the luggage loaded into the car. We want friends who give without expecting payment in return. We want someone to buy us lunch for once. We want the cookie. Chapter three is to the part of you that feels you are only as worthy as your achievements. And I'm reading to you, Mastering Vulnerability. I learned my first lesson of vulnerability at two o'clock in the morning at a North Carolina diner. I'd committed to a volunteer at a weekend event and couldn't afford the gas to get myself home and back. I also couldn't afford food. I was too afraid to sleep in my car and too embarrassed to tell anyone. So I determined I would just stay up all night doing homework at Waffle House. I ordered a $1 cup of coffee that provided me infinite refills and real estate. I can still remember the way my eyes burned from forcing them to stay open and my nose and the back of my jaw from holding back tears. Later that night, a few acquaintances of mine came in for a late night meal and joined me at my table. They were curious about my weird choice to be there alone, wondered where my parents were, and why I wouldn't order food. 
I didn't want to be seen as someone who needed help, as someone who didn't have her life together. I didn't want to be so obviously in need of accolades that I would put myself through this for a volunteer opportunity. With hot, burning cheeks, though, I told them the truth, and they helped. They ordered me food, filled up my tank, and gave me a place to sleep for the night. And they never mentioned it again. I was so scared to be seen in my weakness, but that moment of putting my mask down allowed me to feel supported by people I was keeping at arm's length. Years before, I was in the church lobby when a pastor called me into his office and told me that he'd be paying our power bill that month and asked if I had enough money for groceries. I was in the gas station as my mother told the attendant of my stepfather's latest relapse, and my cheeks flushed as the attendant put the gas on her tab once again. I was a teenager whose family friends took the time to help me buy school clothes for the coming season. I sat in my living room, my mom having beers with friends, talking of their interactions with bill collectors. They laughed at the oddity of calling people without money, telling them to give you money, but knowing there wasn't money to give. The husband told a story of a question he asked a debt collector. Are you worried about whether I pay this or not? Well, yes, sir. I am very worried about this. Well, there's no need in both of us being worried then. And my mom's friend hung up. At 35, I am yet to feel the freedom and joy they held in that moment, the ease of laughing at their situation and their acceptance of each other in what could feel like a shameful situation. I'm reminded of my own private experiences with bill collectors and missing payments, my silent suffering while I tried to maintain appearances. The suffering is the same, but I did it alone. These moments embarrassed me. I felt ashamed that we were in need and I wanted to hide in the floorboard of the car when the truth of our situation came to light. Yet my mother had mastered vulnerability, admitting her limitations and honoring her weakness. Because of that, we were showered with support from our community. Human angels poured into our family and we were not alone. And this is the reminder to all of us who feel the need to seem like we have it all together. The walls we build to hide our failings are begging for us to at least open a window and let love in. When we are seen and loved, even at our weakest, it is in those moments and perhaps those alone where we can truly know that we are loved, not for what we do, but instead for who we are. Chapter four is to the part of you that fears being average. This is called the middle place. A pinprick pain can be so much more when we dig our fingers into it. A misheard word that reminds us of harm we once felt can be its own form of trauma when we demand that it be heard. What starts as a flesh wound gets peeled at the edges until the entirety of it is felt, honored, heard. It starts as a demand that our pain not be ignored and ends as our wounds eating us alive. Now, I'm not saying that our feelings aren't worth being validated or that we need to just think positively until the world gives us what we want. Quite the contrary. However, there is a vast chasm of variety between toxic positivity and swimming in our despair. One extreme asks us to ignore the realities of our suffering and think happy thoughts and amid real abuse against ourselves and those more vulnerable. The other sinks us lower and lower into the belief that there is nothing here for us and nothing good can happen until we change the world. Surely we can find a middle place. The trouble, I think, is that the middle has often been complacent. We see it as average or as tolerant. If you stand in the middle, then what do you stand for? So we sink into one extreme or the other in an attempt to feel something, anything, choosing to be a balloon whose weightlessness lifts us from being down to earth or choosing to be an anvil whose sturdiness can't be blown by the wind. 
In my early 20s, I lived much like a balloon, floating from one entertaining moment to the next, holding on to the belief that the world is working things out for me no matter what I do, dancing my way through life, missing moments because I was too busy planning future adventures. In my early 30s, I felt more like an anvil, sinking into the weight of all that has harmed me, building up walls to keep out more pain, insisting on every emotion being heard, validated, and accounted for. Now I just want to be a basketball. I expect for life to throw me against the wall, or I will lose a bit of air here and there, but in the midst of this, I trust that I will always bounce back. Chapter 5 is to the part of you that fears depletion. And this piece is called Shell. One morning, I went outside to find a turtle waiting at our front door. We live about half a mile from a lake that is full of red-eared sliders, and I imagine that's where he ventured over from. The walk to the lake isn't an easy one, though, for even for us. There's no sidewalk, and there are lots of curves that the cars fly around blindly. I have become someone who prays every morning when my husband takes his run to the water's edge. I tell you that to say, if it feels that you're dangerous to us, then how on earth did this turtle make its way to my doorstep without a scratch? While my husband and son found a box to carry him back to his home, I was meant to keep an eye on him. And while we stood there, I felt a longing to connect with this turtle, a desire to make eye contact and feel that even though we are different, we are also the same. That creeped the turtle out, and he went right into his shell. I thought how nice it must be to have a place to go when the world is too much, when it feels like people are crowding in around you and you have nothing left to give. A place that is only there for you and your thoughts, and I suppose that may be how this turtle made its way here so safely. Knowing when to stop and take breaks, knowing when to go inside for respite, and who to let in and who to keep at arm's length. And I thought about you, how you retreat when the world is too loud, how it is likely what's helped you to get where you are safely. Your shell is your privacy, a barrier that has allowed you to survive up to this point, and I am so grateful for it, as I imagine you are too. And as I am sure you are aware, the turtle must exit its shell eventually. It took steps to find its way to my doorstep. It peeks out to eat, swim, bask, and make love. That's the beautiful thing about gifts. When we use them intentionally, they can be the very thing that keeps us going. Yet when used at the wrong time or in the wrong place or used a bit too often, they can be the thing that keep us from experiencing love, safety, and nourishment. It's not a shame to have a shell. In fact, many of us could learn to build one It's just about knowing when to enter and when to exit and who to share it with along the way. Chapter six is to the part of you that fears letting others down. This piece is called Birdhouse. There's an old birdhouse in our backyard that I am oddly attached to. My husband and our neighbor have both expressed interest in replacing it with a nice new one, but I refuse. There is something beautiful to me in its weathered roof, chipping paint, and the way it leans so far to the left, like an old tree who's tired of standing tall. I realize that a new birdhouse would be beautiful in its own way, and it would probably do a better job at being an actual birdhouse, but I can't imagine a life looking out the window across a yard full of leaves and flowers and snow without the one that I know. This birdhouse watched me tour the home in fear that we wouldn't have anywhere else to go. It watched us move in on that first summer without enough furniture to fill the rooms. It watched during that season I tried to get into jump rope and the hours of writing my husband has done at the dining room window. It watched as my son finally started playing outside by himself and my first attempt at a garden grown in pots, first by the driveway and the next year on the patio, both starting strong and ending as food for the deer. It watched us go from timid and transient to making this space our home. It is a part of our story. 
a vessel that holds our memories in its Swiss cheese walls, and I love it. I am reminded of a friendship I'd held on to much the same. Every unkind word floated off of me like it didn't leave a stain. Each night of being told that my experience could be solved and she had the answers. The night at being left drunk and alone at a bar with a strange man walking home at midnight in a snowstorm because she was meant to be my ride. All the cracks and the chips were beautiful because she'd borne witness to my life for a time. It was a cold fall day on a lake in Canada that I had a conversation with someone I'd known for a moment and felt more seen and accepted than I had with this friend of several years. They listened and were present, and I saw what it would be like to have a friendship with proper support. And I suppose it will be the same when my husband replaces this birdhouse and sturdies up its foundation. A beautiful reminder that what we tolerate will remain until we change what we withstand. Chapter 7 is to the part of you that fears being trapped in painful emotions. This piece is called Grief. I never went to my father's funeral, or my grandfather's, who was more like a father anyway. I guess I just didn't know what to do there, or perhaps I had other plans. I was on a plane to Copenhagen the day they laid my grandfather in the ground, and my dad died the year the world shut down. They offered to mail me some of his ashes, but I couldn't stand the thought of him burned up, pieced out, and shoved into a Ziploc bag, all so I could have my own kind of closure. But I still felt cold that I didn't want some, like I was missing a valuable piece of grieving that others seemed to understand. I wish I'd asked for something that he owned, just something to hold on to that reminded me of him. I imagine a watch or a journal, although by the time he died, he was living with my brother in a trailer where I suppose he didn't have much room for belongings. And he wasn't much of a writer anyway. I do have letters from him. When I was in elementary school, I would write to him, and he would almost always write back. Dad is okay. He misses you. Working at the lumber yard now. I ain't got much money, but here's something. I don't know how much I got from my father. His nose, I think. His eyes. And probably his grammar. Although I started writing stories at a young age and have penned my journal since I was nine, I've always struggled with the rules of writing. My mom would call me after a posted blog and say, you know it's Joanna and I, not me and Joanna, right? I'd act tough like it didn't faze me, and then I'd go make the edits. Once in therapy, I said, I've been through a lot, but none of it has phased me. I just keep going. And in that way, I've lived much of my life like I was skipping the funeral, believing if I keep moving fast enough, the pain wouldn't catch up. Chapter 8 is to the part of you that feels it must be strong. When speaking up at the wrong time. One of my less favorable qualities is that I can argue about anything. I'd like to tell you it's a skill, but it's more of a delusion. I decide where I stand on something and dig my heels in until we both die. I didn't realize this was something I do until I got married to my now husband. It's probably because he does it too, and if we didn't wake up to it, we'd die together of exhaustion, holding hands with our mouths pursed in preparation for, well, actually... In the late summer of 2010, I took a backpacking trip across Europe with my ex-husband and his brother. We flew into Rome, spent some time on the coast of Italy, took a train to Paris, to Zurich, to Edinburgh, and ended in London. It was a trip of my dreams, and honestly, it sucked. We were three people with three very different needs and travel styles who couldn't find a healthy compromise. We had limited funds with differing views on how we should spend our money. They were brothers, and we were married, so my partner had to play the bridge between the two most important relationships in his life. I wanted to explore alone, and that scared him, and his desire to keep me nearby made me feel smothered and controlled. 
It looked like a grand adventure from the outside, but inside, I was waking up to the fact that the person I'd married only a year prior just didn't get me at all. One exhausting night in Paris, we were hungry, broke, and sitting along the Seine on these trampolines that the city had put up. This could have been a respite in the experience, but my argumentative ass had unexpressed needs and they came out sideways. My brother-in-law brought up a documentary he'd watched about Louis Vuitton and how someone else was designing for them. Here's the thing about my particular brand of argumentative. I don't have to be confident that I am the most informed on the topic. I just find something I feel confident about, and we run with that arrogance all the way to the depths of the earth. So while this sweet human was telling me that I'd literally done the research of watching this documentary, I felt in my gut like I knew something about this. And so I argued the point with him, insistent that it wasn't true until we both got so angry and my partner got so uncomfortable that we walked in three opposite directions and I finally got the alone time I'd been begging for. I didn't intend to get into an argument with my brother-in-law. I adored him and still do, but I had felt shut down, ignored, treated as irrational, and controlled the entire trip. And this was the moment for me to be heard, even if it was about the exact wrong thing. This argument is one of those memories that still makes me shiver when I think about it. It was a conversation where I let my arrogance take over and ruin what could have been a nice time. An argument that now would have been easily been solved with a quick Google search on our phones turned into hours of tension. Here's the thing, though. It wasn't about the designer, was it? It was about the weeks of unmet needs, about feeling ignored, about not having confidence to put my foot down when it mattered, but having endless confidence when it didn't. Chapter 9 is to the part of you that feels it must be easy to get along with. This piece is called Hippie Town. I live in a hippie town, a tourist destination for the energetically curious. There's an interesting phenomenon that you can watch from cafe windows. When people come to visit, they will often dress in boho or hippie style clothing. $100 skirts meant to look like they were purchased at a thrift store. Perfectly groomed hair with a feather clipped in. It's obvious to us the tourists playing hippie for a day and those who have made it a lifestyle. The true hippies who live in our town wear their sacrifices on their skin. They smell of earth and sunshine and have dirt under their nails from digging up breakfast. Those playing hippies smell like Bloomingdale's wearing a gardener's clothes. It reminds me of the times I've played tourist in my own skin. The versions of me that I played just so I could blend in. The ease of which I put on an opinion or a personality as a way not to vibrate at too large a frequency, as to make rifts in the space between myself and others. A visitor in my own body, watching my soul sink back as my desire to connect took the lead. Blending my being with the surrounding, a whisper of someone easy to get along with. In meditation, we often chant OM. Recently, I came to understand that it's a representation of jo joining ourself with the entirety of the universe. In honoring of the self, the expanse of time and of people, in many ways, playing tourist in this life gives us a chance to experience a watered-down version of Ohm, to see what it's like to be in another's shoes. It's a beautiful invitation into seeing ourselves not as separate from others, but as deeply and intrinsically connected. However, when blending leads to self-forgetting, Ohm cannot truly occur. It is joining self with the expansive universe, which we cannot truly do when self is not present. Playing tourist can be a way in which we understand the beauty and the struggles of others. Yet as visitors, we only mimic the experiences of those we surround ourselves with. We leave unscarred and without dirt beneath our nails. 
an illusion of connection that doesn't require sacrifice. As we seek to stand fully in our purpose, to be more than a vacant body designed to fit in, we must risk wearing life on our skin. The scars and the aches of trying and failing, the pains of rejection and loss, this is where we go from merging into ohm. When self is fully developed and others are understood still, no longer tucking away our depths, but allowing both to exist at once. When we are tempted to blend in a moment, we should radiate. May we whisper, I love you, back into our bones, and drink of the courage to stand in Ohm. And our conclusion, I'm going to leave my conclusion for you to read in real life. But I also just wanted to say, you know, thank you for joining me today. Um, again, if you haven't already ordered your copy of the Enneagram Letters, I encourage you to do that at theenneagramletters.com. If you can do it today, it would mean the world to me. I also want to briefly just say thank you for being here. I don't say it as much as I feel it. I'm so honored and humbled that you let me be a part of your life and your Enneagram journey in this way, and you bring me into your home or your car or your earbuds while you work out, wherever you bring me. It really means a lot that I'm there. So thank you guys so much. Thank you for being with me through the launch of this book. And here's to many more days like this. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.